Hi, everyone. This is the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Michael Hoke. The history of espionage and intelligence goes back a lot further than you probably realize. In fact, it's far older than any of today's intelligence agencies. Because of this, and maybe it should come as no surprise given the nature of the work, a lot of this history has been largely forgotten. Here with me today to talk about this forgotten history is Christopher Andrew, Emeritus Professor of Modern and Contemporary History at the University of Cambridge and expert on intelligence, having written a definitive account of its history, The Secret World, A History of Intelligence. Christopher, thank you for coming on today. A great pleasure to be here. How far back does the history of intelligence go? Well, to the beginning. <laughs> uh, it actually uh, goes uh, right back to the oldest uh, writing we, we have. Uh, so the, uh, in uh, recorded uh, literature, the first person to emphasize the need for reliable intelligence was God. Um, God explains to Moses, uh, this isn't intended to sound respectful, that he's been hanging around really rather too long and it's time to get into the promised land. And the way to get into the promised land is to quote the King James Version, to send spies to spy out the land of (laughs) Israel. Moses messes it up. He's absolutely no good at um, espionage, 40 years in the wilderness, and then one of the few successful spies from Moses' time, Joshua, comes back and does the business. (laughs) And where does it go from there? I mean, this is obviously rooted in biblical times. Um, We start to have, you know, sort of government entities, I'm sure, taking an interest. What was... The hist- what was intelligence gathering and espionage like in, in Roman times, for well, example? Well, the, the Romans were absolutely hopeless, and so were the Greeks. This is the only area that I can think of uh, in the period of classical Roman and Greek civilization in which the Romans and the Greeks were not even in the same class as the Chinese and the Indians. And I think that's um, uh, accepted now. What tends to, and the reason in both cases was they believed in divination. It was quite a good logical argument, which is, so who's going to know what our enemies are up to? Answer, the gods. So why don't we ask the gods? So go to an oracle, for example, the different oracle, and uh, ask what the Spartans uh, are up to. And that seems very sensible, and it's absolutely idiotic. So one of the forgotten consequences of um, Rome converting to Christianity under the Emperor Constantine the Great is they give up divination, at least at a state level. That's a huge improvement. It sounds an exaggeration, but it's not. Up to that point, Roman generals were supposed to take coops of chickens with them on campaign. (laughs) Then before the campaign battle began, they would open the coops, the chickens would come out, they would throw them uh, a certain amount of grain, and they would watch what the chickens do. And sometimes, I mean, this (laughs) deeply as um, uh, misleading. So from the moment that Roman generals no longer have to take chickens on campaign, there's a really massive improvement in Roman intelligence. And what's, I mean, is there a sense of the success rate uh, in the chicken era versus, you know, sort of the success rate after? It's, it's, it's really quite difficult because the Romans were so much better 
than their contemporaries, with very few exceptions. Hannibal comes to mind. But uh, Hannibal was one of the the very rare examples of uh, somebody who's in the same league as the Romans. He also could do intelligence. And that is why, uh, for the first time, uh, the Romans uh, take uh, a beating. But Thereafter, it uh, it all changes. And what happens after that is successes and failures repeat themselves, and they repeat themselves in a way that doesn't happen in any other profession. And the reason is utterly straightforward, because intelligence is more secret than any other profession. It, peop- it means that people are less likely to know about the successes and failures of their predecessors. So the old historical platitude, and it needs to be remembered that platitudes may be platitudes, but they only get to be platitudes uh, by being uh, true, uh, that um, uh, you know, the, the notion that if you don't understand past mistakes, you're doomed to repeat them mm. is more true in intelligence than anything else. And you mentioned that the Chinese and, and the Indians were doing much better at this at the same period. What sorts of things were, were they up to that was working? Okay. Well, for example, if you go to West Point, this may also be true somewhere in Yale, but I don't know that. One of the set texts is The Art of War by a man who I pronounce Sun Tzu, uh, spelt Sun Tzu, which is, uh, is strong. Now, that, he was a contemporary of Confucius. I mean, this is high-quality stuff. And what happened is that for centuries, the Chinese themselves forgot it, and it was uh, uh, only rediscovered in the uh, 20th century and uh, became extremely influential. Kissinger, after meeting Mao, concluded that uh, Mao paid far more attention to Sun Tzu than he had ever done to Lenin, which is probably probably true. And are there periods of time where the, the sophistication or the technology um, used for intelligence gathering or for espionage or for spying sort of jumps ahead? Um, are there big advances or does this happen incrementally? Over time, well, both. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like uh, any uh, scientific progress; it is incremental, and then from time to time, a Newton comes along, and there's some really big leap. But people understand them very little. Let me let me give you uh, uh, an example. Uh, the biggest, uh, I think, revolution in the West is the so-called Sigint Revolution of the Renaissance. This is a point when it becomes possible to intercept and to decrypt a lot of ciphered communications. And ever since, that has been a major element in Western intelligence. Now, the Venetians, who did it first, and who did it, by the way, in the most beautiful intelligence headquarters in the entire history of intelligence headquarters, the Doge's Palace in Venice. You have to make a special request, by the way. It's right in the top floor. Code breakers are always put in dull, boring uh, rooms, <laughs> not, not the great palatial uh, halls um, and uh, lower down. <laughs> now, but when they make the great breakthrough, I mean, it's obvious now, but it wasn't obvious at the time. If you have a coded message, begin by looking at how frequently different symbols appear. Now, in the English language, and for that matter, in the French language, the commonest symbol, if it's a straight um, uh, forward uh, cipher, transposition cipher, is going to mean E. The second commonest is going to mean T. So simple. But that was a huge breakthrough. 
But the Venetians who did it hadn't the slightest idea that 600 years earlier, um, uh, a, uh, an Arab codebreaker called Al-Kindi had made the same discovery in the Baghdad House of Wisdom. And are there, how do you share this? I mean, how does knowledge get passed down? Uh, how do you learn from these things? Or do you just have to find your way into it like this um, as far as well, an, learning an, these techniques? An awful lot of time, uh, you don't. Um, so uh, intelligence history is not linear in a more straightforward way that it's true of any other profession. It sometimes goes backward. So uh, let me give you an example. Without any doubt, the ablest user of uh, intelligence in the second half of uh, the 18th century was George Washington. I mean, he got a bit confused about spies, uh, particularly the first uh, spy that he had from Yale University, uh, Nathan Hale, a hero, and uh, who only lasted about um, 10 minutes, but at any rate has his statue up um, in just outside Connecticut Hall, uh, an exact copy of that statue outside the CIA and uh, various other ones uh, around the place. But he also realized the importance of code breaking. And after Yorktown, he writes to his codebreaker, chief codebreaker, uh, a mathematician, a teacher of mathematics, to say how important it had been. Now, fast forward to the First World War, the next most important external war, leaving aside the Civil War, obviously, that uh, the United States was engaged in. Woodrow Wilson was the best educated president uh, the United States ever had, and perhaps is ever likely to have. Difficult nowadays to imagine the president of a major university going on to be president of the United States. It's no exaggeration at all to say that Woodrow Wilson was not in the same class, not remotely in the same class uh, as George Washington had, had been. He mocks himself after the war and said, I didn't even realize there were spies around, or rather I realized the Germans had spies, but I didn't realize anybody else had spies. And of course, it never occurs to him that his codes are being broken, broken by his British allies, who really love reading the stuff. Now, the same is true in Britain uh, at the outbreak of war. The Prime Minister, uh, Herbert Asquith, um, is not in the same class as the best British prime ministers of the 18th century, Pitt the Elder and uh, Pitt the Younger. He's completely uninterested in code-breaking. And at a point when Britain is actually, for the first time, the second time, emerging as the best uh, in, uh, in the world. So uh, it's only in the very recent past, and it's still very imperfect, that intelligence agencies have much of a sense of their own past experience. Putin does. <laughs> and, yeah, we can get to Putin later when we start talking about the modern era. But um, is part of the reason that, say, a Woodrow Wilson, who is highly educated, um, is less interested in code breaking, as you said, um, is part of this because of public sentiment in that it, this happens behind the scenes, the public doesn't necessarily know what some of this is? Or is there something else? Is this a willful... No, it's, it's just that the history that he was taught left it out. Uh -huh. And it may well have been the case with you, for example, and other people who may be listening, uh, that when they think back to what they were taught at school about, uh, for example, George Washington, how many people mentioned or learnt about um, George Washington and code breaking? when they were at school. It was just the kind of subject that seemed 
really remote from the rest of politics and uh, international relations. And why do you think this is? I mean, obviously in in fiction and pop culture, spies are are very prevalent. People love but espionage. But that's part of the reason. Uh-huh. The, the, the impression that is given of spies uh, in uh, popular culture is so remote from what goes on that it encourages people to believe, oh, that's just for spy novelists. It's uh, nothing to do with, uh, with, uh, with serious history. Uh, and Bond is, is the perfect example. So again, intelligence is the only profession in which uh, a fictional character is a hundred times, and maybe more than a hundred times, better known than anyone who is in it, anyone who was uh, um, at some point in the past uh, in it. Let me just give you just one example. Um, uh, the opening of the British Olympics, uh, the London Olympics in 2012. Well, Her Majesty uh, Queen Elizabeth II, who is a pretty extraordinary individual, more extraordinary in her 90s than she was in her 80s, and she was in her 80s than in the 70s, and and so it goes back. Um, She opens the Olympics with James Bond, not with a real intelligent chief. And so film is shown of Her Majesty walking down the corridors of Buckingham Palace with James Bond by her side. (laughs) Then she makes, at the age of 87... Um, her first parachute jump with James Bond. Now, you know, there are um, uh, left-wing radicals in in Britain who insist that um, uh, this was uh, just a body double that was uh, not Her Majesty doing a personal um, uh, jump. And, of course, they're, they're absolutely right. But <laughs> just the fact that that was how we cho- and how she chose to uh, open the Olympics. And, oh, by the way, when she got into the royal box, Nobody, not even Prince Philip, her husband, knew that's how, how she was uh, going, going to end. Couldn't have happened in any other profession. And how far, I mean, how far would a spy like James Bond make it in the real world? Everybody knows his name. Everybody knows what he looks like. Uh, you know, it seems he's always getting, meeting the bad well, guy and they know well, him already. Well, that's, that's part of the point why it's so ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the first thing if you're a spy is that people shouldn't realize you're a spy. So if you walk into, into the room and ask uh, the way for the latest uh, for a, a gambling table, <laughs> you draw attention to yourself uh, in a way that uh, no other uh, profession does. So it's, but it's done the image of British intelligence an awful lot of good. Nobody knows an exact statistic. But a majority of the world's population have seen and mainly enjoyed uh, James Bond films. So when, uh, from time to time, uh, foreigners uh, are asked um, if they would like to be a British agent, at least some of them are going to think, oh, that's rather fun, isn't it? Um, I don't know, CIA sounds a bit dodgy to me and KGB, I wouldn't think about it. But yes, um, if I get to meet Bond, that will be wonderful. And what? What is a real spy actually doing? If you're out there as a spy, what are you actually doing? Well, what you're actually doing, as in all other forms of intelligence collection, is collecting material which is not available in open sources. And that varies from generation to generation because the kind of material that is out there on the web never used to be, a lot of it never used to be publicly available. During the Soviet era, for example, uh, even accurate maps of most parts of uh, of Russia uh, were um, uh, were secret. So there are certain kinds of things which, over the generations, are always going to be secret. Um, uh, no 
power, for example, when it goes to war with another power, said, look, we think the best way to attack it would be the following. So that is obviously something which has to be discovered by intelligence, sometimes technical means, sometimes human beings. But there are things that the human beings can do which artificial intelligence can't yet, although it may at at one point, which is to get into the mindset. Uh, For example, so far as the Russians are concerned, uh, they've always been driven by conspiracy theories of one kind or another. So having somebody working for you, as the British did uh, at the end of the Cold War, who is high up in uh, Russian uh, intelligence, gives you an insight into the mindset. So just one example, somebody I knew and uh, know well. The man who at the very end of the of the Cold War, or just the Cold War was ending, the beginning of the Gorbachev era in 1985, is made KGB resident in London, which is jargon for being head of Russian intelligence operations in London. Oleg Gordievsky has been working for British MI6 foreign intelligence since 1974. And he's able to show that the Russians have leadership, have this deluded belief that Ronald Reagan is preparing a nuclear first strike uh, against the Soviet Union. Um, the, the West finds that pretty difficult. But when Gordievsky is discovered and escapes, he comes over, and there's a photograph in my book, comes over to the Oval Office where Reagan shakes him warmly by the hand. The first time a British spy has had an op- a photo opportunity with an American president. And speaking of the Russians and going back to the, you know, Putin and, and some of the modern things that are happening, obviously the U.S. just had an election and one of the big, uh, big things has been the security of elections and what the Russians may or may not be doing uh, as far as meddling in these elections. Um, first of all, how widespread in the modern era is this idea of meddling in, in elections? Well, I mean, it's been there since the very beginning of um, Soviet intelligence. The thing that most surprises me, but it's a perfect example of what I call, forgive me for producing the only acronym I've ever invented, HASD, H-A-S-D-D, Historical Attention Span Deficit Disorder. Only somebody who had absolutely refused to read any of the history of the KGB would be the slightest surprised by what the Russians are doing in more recent years. So let me just give one obvious example. What's the main Russian aim immediately after the Second World War? To create what it's fair to call an empire, although they called it a socialist commonwealth in Eastern Europe. So there are all these countries which didn't want to have communist rule. And within a year or so, they were giving 99% majorities. Now, these were rigged elections. So the whole of the post-war Soviet system begins with rigged elections. Now, from an early stage, they try and influence them in the West, but it doesn't work very much. But they go to an awful lot of trouble. Uh, For example, there are a whole series of forged documents with the signature Ronald Reagan at the bottom. And these were supposed to show that Reagan was having secret dealings with the apartheid regime in South Africa and, uh, and so on and so on. But they didn't really have very much effect. So the, what has really made the difference is social media. For the first time, Russia is able to have some influence, very difficult to calculate, have some influence on uh, elections in the West uh, through the social media. And the social media is, after all, the perfect vehicle for spreading disinformation. 
Uh, it's very unclear to me as to whether there is more disinformation than information on the web. But I'm inclined to think there is more disinformation. So anyone who has main interest is disinformation, social media is where to begin. And is Russia ahead of the curve on this? Are they are they far ahead or are they are other countries US Britain? Well it's 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 a higher priority. And I'm not in any way suggesting that the, the foreign policy of the United States or the United Kingdom is beyond uh, criticism. But really, there have been remarkably few attempts to rig elections in other countries. I can think of, uh, of one or two in Iran, uh, for example, in the early early 1950s. But those are are, um, are exceptional. So it is a Russian uh, speciality. Now, one of the things we tend to forget um, is that Russians, uh, the Russian leadership takes a longer-term view of intelligence than uh, any of its Western um, uh, competitors. I mean, it's a largely fictitious view. It's a, it's a, a cosmetically in, enhanced view. But let me give you an example. I'm the author of the, I was for a time, official historian of the British Security Service, MI5, and the centenary history, uh, which I um, uh, did for, for them, only went back to the Victorian era. Now, the, the Russian history of foreign intelligence, which um, came out at the end of the 20th century and the first six years of the 21st um, century, is six volumes. And how far does it go back? Not merely does it go back to Ivan the Terrible in the 16th century. It goes back e- even further. And Putin is fascinated by this, uh, uh, this stuff. And you see him, and it's, as far as I'm aware, um, it's been virtually unnoticed in the United States from time to time, he will pull out some bit of intelligence history, which he thinks, probably correctly, the West didn't know anything about. So here's, here's one example. The highest award you can get um, in Russia is to become hero of the Russian Federation. When it was still the Soviet Union, it was hero of the, the Soviet uh, Union. So in 2007, he suddenly announces uh, that a uh, Soviet agent, which people in the West had virtually never heard of, whose name was George Koval, and who had been uh, an undiscovered part of um, the intelligence operation which captured the biggest secret in the history of world espionage. In other words, the plans of the first atomic bomb. Now, we discovered pretty much how that was done through the penetration of uh, Los Alamos. But the bit that we had not discovered... Uh, was the so-called initiator, what starts off the explosion, which was um, uh, polonium-210, radioactive polonium-210. So um, Putin, who was um, uh, more or less teetotal, nonetheless made an exception. And there are photos of it. There's a photo in, in my book of him raising a champagne toast to Georges Koval. Now, what makes this particularly sinister is that only a few months earlier, one of the people whose assassinations he had ordered uh, in the West, who was an FSB, ex-KGB defector, called Alexander Litvinenko, was poisoned in central London by polonium-210. So he was mocking Western intelligence, as well as celebrating the glories of uh, Russian intelligence when he made Koval hero of Russia. So... With this long view of the history of intelligence, and, and, and as we've talked about, a lot of it forgotten, um, what should 
modern intelligence agencies be doing that they may not be doing um, in order to keep up with, say, a Russia or... Well, I mean, the, the, the basic thing is simply to learn from experience. Now, that sounds terribly simple, and, of course, learning experience from experience is desperately difficult. But there are only two, two alternatives. One is to make no attempt to learn from experience, and the other is to uh, make um, uh, some attempt. Uh, let me give you an example. Now, if and this is not going to happen to you, uh, you suddenly found yourself uh, with a doctor by your bedside tomorrow morning. And as you recovered consciousness, uh, the doctor says, there's good news and bad news. The good news is that your faculty, physical faculties are entirely unimpaired. The other good news is that your intellectual faculties are entirely unimpaired. The bad news is you've forgotten your past experience. Now, in ways that neither you nor I nor anybody else could anticipate, we know you wouldn't be as effective thereafter as you had been before. So beginning by discovering what uh, past experience was. So here are a few things. And during the, uh, the Cold War, um, the biggest mistake I think we made on both sides of the Atlantic in interpreting Russian intelligence was to confuse the sophistication of intelligence collection for example, being able to replicate exactly the first um, uh, American atomic bomb and their misunderstanding of Western uh, politics. But if we had paid attention to the sufficient attention to autocratic regimes throughout the ages, we would have known that with hardly any exceptions, autocrats want to be told what they want to hear. And you know, the, the idea that you would tell Stalin or even some of his successors, look, you've got it entirely wrong. The West is really like this. This wouldn't merely have been a bad career move. Under Stalin, it would have been a life-shortening experience. <laughs> All right. Well, the book is The Secret World, A History of Intelligence. Christopher, thank you for coming on. Thank you. That does it for this week's episode. You can find more at yalebooks.yale.edu or on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or your favorite app. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating.